You're listening to the King's Church DC podcast. King's Church is located in the heart of Washington DC and exists to make Jesus known in our city through enduring presence that brings personal conversion, purposeful living, and community reconciliation. We hope you enjoy the following sermon. everybody. Uh, About five years ago, I was living down in Quantico, Virginia. And looking back on that stretch of time, it was one of the most hard and confusing times of my life. I was in my mid-20s, and uh, those years weren't great. If you're having a a happy mid-20s, good for you. That's awesome. Uh, I'd just come off a string of some really bad church experiences broken relationships, and I had just dropped out of my PhD program. I was all by myself in a new place, and I was doing a church planning residency, which is basically something you can do to prepare to plan a church, uh, but I was pretty much checked out at that point. Everything in my life was paralyzed and dark. Uh, Looking back on it, I'm good now, uh, but it was one of the most lonely and confusing times in my life. About three months in, I had a midlife crisis and decided to join an MMA CrossFit gym. That's uh, mixed martial arts like UFC and CrossFit, of course, which needs no explanation. Up on the screen, uh, you'll see me trying to fight. It wasn't very successful. Uh, I didn't learn much about fighting or CrossFit, but I did stumble upon something really, really good there. I met two people named Lee and Rhonda Willard. Uh, They were a bit older than me, but I found out they were Christians, and we quickly became friends. I worked out with Lee during the week and sometimes on the weekends, and I'd often go over uh, to the Willard's house on the weekends. It was a season of intense loneliness, confusion, and paralysis, but I can look back upon those years, and I can honestly say God was never silent in my life. Uh, He gave me two friends, and that made it a whole lot more bearable. Uh, Lee and Rhonda eventually joined this church. Uh, They were here on day one, and still to this day, they continue to be members of this church. They drive 45 minutes back and forth every Sunday to be here, and I know it's been a uh, busy few months back there, Willards, but I just want to say thank you for being my friend. Uh, thank you for following Jesus with me and with this church. Now, friendships in general are really important. Uh, you've probably heard it more times than you can count, but there's some truth in the statement, you are the average of the five people you spend the most time with, as well as the quote, show me your friends and I'll show you your future. Uh, Friendships matter, and they impact us a whole lot. Individually, as a believer, you have a purpose. Uh, That's not just motivational speaking this morning. There's a reason you're here on this earth. You have a specific purpose, and it becomes clearer and clearer as you know Jesus Christ and follow him. And collectively, we as believers have a purpose. There's a reason we're a church. The church has a purpose, and it becomes clearer and clearer as we know and follow Jesus. Friendships really matter because they impact both. 
They impact both greatly. On an individual level, a good friendship, or what I'll call this morning a godly friendship, or a Christian friendship, helps both people mutually fulfill a specific purpose. It helps them fulfill their specific purpose because the friendship or relationship is pressing them closer to be all that they are to be in Jesus Christ. In a sense, this is what we call discipleship. In a good friend, a godly friend, in a Christian friend, God disciples us. He instructs us. He encourages us. He teaches us. He contradicts us to be more like Jesus and to live out our specific purpose in Him. And on a collective level, when lots of good friendships come together, lots of godly friendships, lots of Christian friendships come together, the church forms up. It's able to accomplish its specific purpose more readily. All those friendships begin to work together to be the hands and the feet and the mouth of Jesus, showing off his greatness in the world. And this is, of course, what we call mission, the body of Christ coming together, the hands and the feet, the mouth and the elbows and all sorts of different members coming together to accomplish all that God has planned in the world. Now, I mentioned all of this because in our passage this morning, we're going to see an example of a person so committed to the purpose of Jesus, both personally and collectively. And yet, he's not a lone ranger. He's not all by himself. His life is filled with godly friendships. He knew there was mutual impact. He knew that they were better together. My main idea, which is going to be up on the screen, really follows this idea, and it's pretty simple. The Christian life is all about the goodness of godly friendships and the greatness of Jesus Christ. The Christian life is all about the goodness of godly friendships and the greatness of Jesus Christ. The greatness of Jesus Christ, meaning his beauty, his being, his power. Uh, the power of his spirit that lives in us, that produces good works and uh, gifts of mercy and grace to those around us. Now, my outline is going to essentially flow right from this text. Uh, Here at King's Church, we teach the Bible. We believe the Bible. uh, We want to think about what the Bible says to us. And so my points are going to flow right from this text. Number one, Christian friendships are discovered, not just made. Christian friendships are made not just discovered. Christian mission is communal, not just individual. Christian mission is individual, not just communal. I know that probably just drove over half of you crazy. A quarter of this room are lawyers, but it doesn't take a JD to see that I'm trying to cause a little bit of tension in these ideas. There's some complexity in these ideas, and I want to draw out some of that tension this morning. Uh, Now, before we dive in, uh, for those of you maybe who are joining us for the first time, uh, others of you have been kind of in and out over the last couple of months, we have been studying the book of Acts as a church. Uh, Acts essentially tells us the origin story of the Christian church. Uh, Jesus Christ died, and then he was raised from the dead, and for 40 days he was there teaching with his early followers, establishing the church, and then he ascended into heaven and poured out his spirit, and the church begins to explode in that first century context. 
Uh, We're getting closer to the end of Acts here at King's Church, and at the end of Acts, as we're in the the latter chapters of Acts, it really begins to focus on the Apostle Paul. He's had an amazing transformation. He's come to faith in Jesus. God has opened his eyes to see uh, who he is uh, and what he has done, and he's doing missionary work around the empire. Uh, the gospel of Jesus is spreading like wildfire through uh, the, the mouth and the hands of the apostle. Uh, God's purposes are being mightily accomplished through this man. And so in these latter chapters of Acts, we find that he's traveling a whole lot. If this were present day, his job description would be 90% travel. He would have racked up a lot of frequent flyer miles if there were airplanes back then. A few weeks ago, he was in Corinth. Then he was in Athens, and then he was in Ephesus. Uh, These were different kinds of cities with all different kinds of people, and he's there teaching about Jesus. And this gospel message begins to transform different types of people, different kinds of people. It brings hope and salvation, uh, the forgiveness of sin, uh, a clear conscience, hope in God to all different types of people. And what we begin to see is that new churches, hundreds of churches, are started all throughout the empire. God's gospel begins to really take root. And so where we find ourselves this morning is that Paul is trying to get back to Jerusalem. He says he has this kind of divine calling, this divine purpose to go back to Jerusalem. He's in modern-day Turkey. He's kind of there with a a lot of friends, a lot of Christian friends, a lot of uh, people from the church, and he says he feels this deep calling to go back to Jerusalem. He knows God wants him to do a particular thing there in Jerusalem. And so he's just said goodbye. He's given this kind of speech, a farewell speech, to the church there at Ephesus. He's spoken a lot of words. He's given them this farewell speech, and then the text that we'll be looking at this morning really kicks off here in verse 36. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. So he gives this farewell speech, this this final hurrah, and they all kneel down and they, they pray. There's deep emotions here. And, and the text says that they embrace him. Uh, Paul is not just kind of a stoic man. He, he was filled with emotions. Uh, he's a complex man. It says uh, they kissed him. Uh, you see this often today in, in Middle Eastern culture still today where uh, uh, men kiss each other on the neck or the cheek to show brotherly love. They're close friends. They had shared life and faith. Uh, They were connected at uh, all points of life. Uh, There wasn't particular compartments of their life that they had concealed from one another, but instead they they were fully known. Uh, They knew each other, and they knew him. The passage continues in Paul and Luke, Paul's companion. uh, They get on a boat, and we'll notice that it's not a direct flight this morning. Uh, There's going to be a lot of connections, a lot of starts and stops. They're going to be threading through the Mediterranean Sea, trying to get back to Jerusalem. Verse 1, And when he had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patera. Uh, Of course, uh, Rhodes 
And Kos are Greek islands today. Kos was known for its medical school. Luke would have certainly liked uh, that stop, uh, whereas Rhodes was home to the Colossus, which was a giant statue. And of course, you can imagine Paul probably didn't uh, like that too much. Patara is in Turkey. It's a seaport. Verse 2, and having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. So they make it across the Mediterranean. They're at Tyre, which is a big commercial city in verse 4. And having sought out the disciples, that is, other Christians, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. In other words, they landed in Tyre, and they sought out other Christians. Uh, Paul's probably not been here before. He's probably not met these people before. He probably doesn't know them. And these Christians are saying to Paul, Jerusalem is a level four country. Do not go there. Do not go to this city. You are going to be in trouble if you go there. Verse 5, when our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey. And they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship and returned home. So just like that first kind of big farewell, we see another one. Except this time he's only been there for seven days. And he's already built some pretty strong bonds. Uh, The entire church, kids included, goes down to the beach, they pray, And they say goodbye. Verse 7, when we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we landed at Ptolemais and we greeted the brothers and sisters, again, short for other Christians, and stayed with them for one day. Verse 8, on the next day we departed and came to Caesarea and we entered the house of Philip the evangelist who was one of the seven and stayed with him. Paul, uh, Philip rather, was a well-known Christian and we met him earlier in Acts and Paul is now staying in his house here At Caesarea, verse 9, he had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. That is, they had the ability to speak spontaneously uh, things that God may have or may have not brought to mind. Verse 10, while we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. So again, tons of Christian friends are around Paul. And just like at Tyre, but more animated, this guy Agabus comes down. He's a prophet. And he says the same thing. Jerusalem is a level four. Do not go there. Do not travel. He says... God's telling me pretty clearly, if you go there, your career is over. You will not be safe. And all of the Christians, including even Luke, tell Paul, do not go. Verse 13. I just love this because Paul is so stubborn. Then Paul answered, what are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. So Paul hears them again but he's not going to be talked off the ledge. He hears these very real prophecies that danger awaits him. There's no security, there's no safety, that there's certain arrest, but at the same time, he's captured by the greatness of Jesus Christ. He knows there's a purpose there. 
He has a higher love, higher than self-preservation, the greatness of Jesus Christ. Verse 14, and since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. In other words, Luke is saying Paul is very stubborn. He cannot be persuaded. Verse 15, after these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem, and some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Manasseh of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. Again, traveling with Christian friends, always with people, not a lone ranger. Now, again, I said I had four points, and each of these points flows right from this text. Uh, This is an obscure text, I know, but there is a lot here. Point number one, Christian friendships are discovered and not just made. Christian friendships are discovered and not just made. One commentator says of this passage that the man who is in the family of the church has friends all over the world. And in this passage, we see that happening. We see a snap shot of Paul's travels, and in many places he stops, he's never met the people before. At times he stays in their homes, Uh, he stays overnight, other times he stays for weeks, and he forms deep friendships with people he'd likely never met before. People from different cultures, different ages, different stages of life. It's all because there was a deep commonality. The point is, is that they shared something deep. And what they shared, of course, was none other than Jesus Christ. They had a common vision of the greatness of Jesus Christ. Even when they really didn't know each other, or maybe even have a lot in common, that commonality in Jesus created a massive connection. Up on the screen is a picture of a guy and myself reading Bibles. This was my interpreter uh, years ago in Southeast Asia, and I found out he was a Christian. And even though we had absolutely nothing in common, he was a brother to me the minute I met him. We had everything in common because of our common faith in Jesus Christ. Now, this is basically not rocket science. Thinkers, Christian or not, have been saying throughout the centuries that the essence of friendship isn't just looking at each other and saying, let's be friends, but it's having something in common. In other words, true friendship doesn't happen when two friends kneel down on the beach and say, let's be friends. True friendship happens when two people kneel down on a beach before something else. There's a common passion or a common devotion that's uniting them. And as Christians this morning We're literally kneeling on the beach before Almighty God. We're kneeling before the infinite, all-knowing God who has saved us in Jesus Christ. The God who's made us new by the power of His Spirit. That means there's an amazing possibility to have deep unity unlike anything else out there. It means that when two people are bowing before Jesus Christ, It doesn't matter who they used to be, they're becoming friends. It doesn't matter who their ancestors were, it doesn't matter their socioeconomic status or anything else. When two people are bowing before Jesus, united to him by his spirit, there is a deep unity. There is a common bond there unlike anything else. 
and it's called the grace of God. It's called his forgiveness. It's called his mercy. It's called his love. It's called his hope. C.S. Lewis really sums up my point here and says it well. Friendship is discovered at that moment when a person says to another person, what? You too. I thought I was the only one. So Christian friendship is discovered, not just made. But Christian friendship isn't just discovered, it's also made, meaning you have to work on it. Which really leads us to point number two. Now, Paul later on writes to the church at Ephesus, and he says this, maintain the spirit of unity and the bond of peace. Notice he doesn't say attain the unity of the spirit, but maintain. Uh, it brings out the tension I'm trying to show this morning. The point is, because we're proverbially bowing before the same thing, if you're a Christian in this room this morning, we've got the most important thing in common. We don't have to attain our unity. It's been given to us, but we do have to maintain it, meaning we have to work hard at friendships. Notice in this passage that as Paul's stopping at different destinations and discovering these Christian friendships or visiting old friends, he's doing more than just hanging out. He's doing what Christians call fellowshipping. Now, I know that word is overused. I know that it's watered down, but the original Greek word is koinonia, meaning to share. And notice they're sharing a whole lot in this passage. They're sharing their feelings, verse 37, 38, verse 5, verse 13. They're not stoic. There's lots of tears in this passage. They're embracing each other, uh, the men especially. They're sharing their things, verse 4, 7, 8. They're opening their houses to Paul and Luke. They're feeding him. They're not mastered by their stuff or the bottom line. They're sharing their faith, verse 36, verse 4, verse 5, and more. They're constantly talking about the thing they have in common, the Lord Jesus. It's a big topic for them. And, of course, they're sharing their time, the whole passage. Uh, these friendships weren't just obligations. They were friends. They liked each other. Uh, they shared their lives. There was some vulnerability. Brian Hedges, a pastor out of Michigan, lists eight principles that he says should exist in good Christian friendships. And I find these very intriguing and helpful. Number one, selectivity. He lists some Proverbs. Proverbs 13.20, Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. This is the idea that not everyone can be your closest friend. Uh, sometimes if we bring, bring the wrong people too close to us, it can mess us up. Number two, he talks about this idea of proximity, Proverbs 27.10. Better is a neighbor who is near than a brother who is far away. The idea there is that sometimes distance can make friendships harder and that it's important to have friends in a shared space. Number three, he says boundaries. This is the idea that different people have different capacities for friendships, and different friendships can have different limitations. Number four, mutuality. What he means by that is friendship is a two-way street. Both contribute. Each person benefits. There's also commonality. Number five, respect. He says this is one of the foundations for friendships. In Proverbs, respect is often tied to speech. Particularly, it shows uh, we respect others and how we talk about them when we're not around them. Proverbs 25, argue your case with your neighbor himself and do not reveal another secret, lest he who hears you bring shame upon you and your ill repute have no end. Number six, candor. 
Pretty much honesty. Proverbs 27, better is an open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. As Oscar Oscar Wilde said, a true friend stabs you in the front. Forgiveness. (laughs) One of the most important, I would would contend. Maybe the most important. No friendship lasts without it. Proverbs 17, whoever covers an offense seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates close friend. The idea there is we need to be generous in extending forgiveness to friends. And then number eight, constancy. He says love working through constancy is the heart of friendship. Uh, Persistence, love, sacrifice. Proverbs 17, a friend loves at all times, and a brother or sister is born for adversity. Friendships matter, and God has blessed us with so many friendships, and yet he calls us to work on them as well. Now, not only is the Christian life about the goodness of friendships, but it's also about the greatness of Jesus Christ, this great thing that we have in common as Christians. When people are are captured by the greatness of Jesus, the result is mission. The result is our lives go to work. Different members of the body of Christ coming together to accomplish God's good purposes in the world, which really leads us to point three. Christian mission is communal, not just individual. Another commentator says of this passage, for Paul, the church has become a countercultural global network of communities caring for their own subversive missionaries who are now traveling to and fro throughout the empire. The point there, it's a little complicated, the point there is that Christian mission, meaning redemptive work in the world, is not just one person's job, but the whole body of Christ's, the whole church's. The late John Stott said that redemption and healing in this world requires the whole church to take the whole gospel to the whole world. It's the idea that God wants all of his people involved. Now notice the background of this passage isn't that Paul's a lone ranger. He's been sent out by a church in Syria. Uh, They've commissioned him. There was a lot of contemplation. Uh, There was a lot of prayer before they deployed him as a missionary. There was a lot of consideration, a lot of people speaking into that. And as he travels, of course, we find he's not a lone ranger. He's traveling with Luke and at times with a lot of other people. There's meaningful connection between Paul and the church. He's not Rambo trying to save the world by himself. I love the story of Dunkirk during World War II. Uh, Some of you know this from the recent movie, but in the spring of 1940, uh, Nazi panzer divisions were closing in and really mopping up French troops. Uh, They were preparing for the siege of Britain. But some 250,000 British soldiers and 100,000 Allied soldiers were stuck on the coast of Dunkirk. Uh, The Royal Navy had only enough ships to save 17,000 troops, and Nazi troops were just a few miles away on the hills of France, and they were closing in on an easy kill. Uh, The House of Commons was told to brace itself for hard and heavy tidings. But all of a sudden, 700 or so little ships, little ragtag ships, fishing boats, lifeboats, sailboats, and all sorts of boats came to rescue these troops. And some 338,000 troops 
were rescued that day, even as German aircraft harassed them in the air. Now, that's a great little reminder that the whole church, a ragtag group of little people, is involved in doing good for the world. It's not just one or two big battleships. It's the whole team, wholly involved together for the sake of the gospel. Now, really practically speaking, being connected to the church in real ways can help us in so many ways fulfill God's good purposes for our lives. This is because churches are communities filled with people who are trying to do their best to press us towards Jesus Christ and all that he has for our lives. They're filled with people who want to encourage us and cheer us on in so many ways as we go against the currents of the world. It's difficult being a Christian, and we need each other to stay afloat. But in light of that, there is a big elephant in this passage, and it leads us to my final point this morning. Christian mission is individual and not just communal. What I mean by that is that in this passage, Paul's friends actually fail him. They're wrong. The representation of the church in this passage gets it wrong. Good old Agabus gives a real prophecy, but the interpretation of that prophecy is wrong. One Bible scholar notes, In attempting to turn Paul away from Jerusalem, his friends demonstrated that their spiritual focus was more horizontal than vertical. Their love and loyalty were commendable. They wanted to preserve Paul, but their motives, though noble, were short-sighted. These Christians were not seeing God's ultimate purposes. They were looking out for Paul's good, but not God's. What I mean by Christian mission is individual, not just communal, is that we have unique individual accountability before God for who we are and what we do. That means we'll give an account. That means we have a responsibility. And that responsibility is to keep the main thing the main thing. And that main thing is the revealed thing, the greatness of Jesus Christ, the mission of God in the world. The point is that sometimes even our good Christian friends can get it wrong, but this should remind us that we have a friend who sticks closer than a brother. In Jesus Christ, we have the perfect friend, On the cross, Jesus became completely vulnerable for us, completely exposed to us. He had his arms wide opened and said, it is finished. And in his resurrection, he proves to be the only friend who will ever truly come through for us. He's constant. His love is never ending. And his sacrifice and resurrection from the dead proves it this morning. As we move to the Lord's Supper, let's remember Jesus Christ. Let's give thanks to God for all the good in our lives. And let's be wrapped up in the greatness of all that he is. Thank you for listening to this episode of King's Church DC podcast. If this sermon encouraged you, please like, rate, and subscribe to our podcast. For more information on our church and service times, please visit kingschurchdc.com. We hope you will join us again next week.